1: This weekend saw news about renewed pressure on Israel to make a deal with the Palestinians to create a separate Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. It's the kind of deal that's been talked about for years, but never realized. Coming up later, we'll talk with Greg Myrie and Jennifer Griffin, a husband and wife journalism team who covered the conflict for years. Their book is called This Burning Land. But first, Dr. Isildine Abelish, who was born into adversity in a Palestinian refugee camp. He became a well-known physician in Gaza who treated patients on both sides of the border. In 2009, an Israeli rocket hit his house, killing three of his daughters and his niece. He's now an associate professor of medicine at the School of Public Health at the University of Toronto in Canada, and he's author of the book, I Shall Not Hate. He's urging reconciliation, not more violence. He joined us last week in studio when he was here to talk at Central Connecticut State University. Dr. Isolde Abulish, welcome to where we live. Thank you. First of all, I, I want you to tell us about growing up uh, in a Palestinian refugee camp and growing up w- where you did and how you turned it into a career in medicine. Tell, tell us about growing up.
0: Uh, I was born and raised in a Jabalia refugee camp in the Gaza Strip uh, to a family which was uh, kicked out from their homeland in 1948 after the Palestinian crisis. And this is one of the most difficult times in life for anyone when you feel homeless, stateless, in one day or night, to be nothing. But our parents, they were determined, they realized the importance of education. And as a child, to be in a refugee camp with the full meaning of suffering, deprived of childhood, abject poverty, deprivation, were children in a time they are born to taste their childhood. The Palestinian children in the refugee camps, they never tasted their childhood, and I was one of them. But it's shame even till now, hundreds of millions of children suffer the same. Nothing changed. This suffering is man made. We were not born with it. It's worth It's what did we do to each other and we practice. And I can say to you, in that I looked as a hope, because it's man-made. It's man-made, but have
1: you ever said that one group of men or the other is to blame? Do you blame some group of men for that man-made tragedy?
0: I don't like to blame. Blaming is not the right way. The right approach is to take responsibility. What can you do in a positive way to challenge and to change what is going on? Not to witness or watch it in silence. What can you do? That's important. Because if we want to start blaming, we will never move forward. For me as a medical doctor now, if a patient comes, and I wanted to blame that patient. Why, is, why he is not taking the medication? Why he is not following my orders? I will never move. I want to deal with the case and to see why he didn't follow the instructions. We are not punishing or blaming. We care about each other. And that's important in a positive way. So I dreamed, and I can tell everyone, dream big. It's important to dream. I can oppress someone. I can occupy. I can deprive him. I can imprison him. But no one can deprive us or prevent us from dreaming. Dreaming are Dreams are free for everyone. So dream big. The young men and women in this world, they have to dream. Dreams are close to reality. Once They are accompanied by hard work. I dreamed one day to be a medical doctor. I succeeded. I worked hard. And now I achieved that dream.
1: In Gaza today, are those dreams hard to come by for, for young people, do you think?
0: I don't think. Nothing is impossible. Even in spite of the difficulty, the Palestinians in general and the Gazans in particular are living They are dreaming, and they are achieving their dreams. Nothing is impossible. And I can say to you, my daughter, Shada, who was severely wounded, that I am proud of, she lost the sight in one eye. She lost two fingers. And what did she suffer in one year? Mountains. Can't bear that. She went back to the high school to study, to work hard determined because she was working hard to be one of the first in in Palestine in the high school after what did she suffer i didn't expect anything from her she did the exam and she succeeded as nothing happened as usual she succeeded 96% and now what is she doing she's studying computer engineering at the university of toronto give them the freedom our people and the children who are the future, they have the potential. So give them the opportunity and you will see what can they do.
1: I know that you've had to tell this story many, many times. And some in our listening audience have probably heard your story and some haven't. So I'm wondering if you can take us back to the day that uh, Israeli bombs essentially wrecked your life, destroyed your life and 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 killed members of your family. Could you tell us about that day?
0: It's a day where my children were happy, planning their future. Because in our life, we have the priorities. And the priority in our life is our future. But who is the future? Our children. I was discussing with them, where can we go as I got two offers, one from the University of Toronto and one from the University of Harvard. So my daughter, Aya, God bless her soul, she said, we have to fly. And everything was ready to leave because those offers came before the war. And at the same time, I was supposed to be interviewed live by Israeli TV. Seconds after I left my daughter's room, the first shell came. I didn't believe it. Because during that time, during the what do I call a human craziness of killing, in a time a human life is the most precious, saving one, you save the world. Killing one, you kill the world. The world was witnessing, watching what is happening in Gaza. And they didn't do anything to stop it. It can't be stopped. It can be prevented. And Gazans became numbers, statistics. They are not a human being with faces, with names. After I left my daughter's room, just seconds, the first shell came. I don't want anyone to see or witness or experience what did I experience. Where is B-San? those beautiful, bright, lovely daughters. Bisan, who was 20 years old, who was the sister, the friend, the mother for her siblings. Bisan was the first girl that I can write books about her, about her wisdom. Children, and I can tell people to take the wisdom and to learn and to listen to their children. In my life, I listened and I adopt the advices of my children, my daughters. Bisan was the first to send to peace camps at the age of 14 as a girl. Bisan is the one who said, in our life we face difficulties. As students, we think academic exams are the most difficult part in life. After she lost her mother, she said, it's life exams. Academic exams are the easiest in life. Where is Bisan? Where is Mayar? Who was 15? Who was the president of the student's parliament? Where is Aya? Who planned to be a journalist or a lawyer to be the voice of other children? Where is Noor? They became parts. Decapitated. As if they were born in a pool of blood. But I said, it's important to have faith. I said, this tragedy is for good. It must be invested for good. To disclose the secret and to save others. Why I was saved. If I stayed five seconds, I would be gone. And I will be added to the numbers. And my daughter's as hundreds, even thousands. It came to disclose the secret and to open the eyes of the international community, the Israeli public, everywhere. It satisfied me the second day when it was announced unilateral ceasefire, after the Israeli Prime Minister saw what happened and announced it. It saved others' lives. So many people will listen to your story,
1: though, and say it's remarkable that your initial reaction would be not one of of hatred because in this, not just this war, but in this long-running war between the Palestinians and and the Israelis, hate seems to fuel so very, very much. How can you set that aside given not just what happened to your family but what you saw with your own eyes? How do you set that, that hate aside?
0: We are human beings. And when God created us and blessed us to be human beings, that we have choices to use our minds. This is the difference between a human being and animals. I understand the people who adopt hate as their approach. But we have to think, to give ourselves the time to think, Is it the right approach? I lost my daughters. They were killed with bullets. And if I wanted to hate, do you think the one I hate, is he thinking of me? And to hate whom? He's not thinking of me. Am I going to be destroyed to add more to the tragedy by injecting myself with hate? And poison and fire that I will be wasted and consumed with I lost my daughters but I feel the responsibility what can I do to keep them alive living because I see my daughters talking to me do something our lives our souls our blood must be kept holy and noble with good words, with wisdom. And good words and wisdom don't need hate. How do you convince
1: others, though, because so many other fathers have lost daughters uh, in these conflicts, so many other mothers have lost sons, how do you convince them if they are filled with hate and they want to, to lash out or blame someone else, When you talk to to others who've suffered what you've suffered, what do you say to them?
0: I talk to them. Just think for a second, for a minute. Remember the beloved ones you lost. What can you do for them when one day you will meet them? What are you going to tell them? I stayed drowning in hate busy with revenge or am I going to meet with them proud even every day to send them gifts to send them messages of mercy of good deeds in their memory to send those messages you must be wise you must be rational healthy because as long as you hate your mind Shut down, you just focus. how can what can you do to get the revenge of the perpetrator? and he is not thinking of you. You kill yourself. self-destructive actions, personally, as a believer, I believe I will meet my daughters, and I will meet them. One day, as I swore to God and to them, I see them now telling them I kept your blood and souls holy and noble and I am coming to meet you one day with the big gift to bring them the justice with good deeds for them and others and that their blood wasn't waste or futile.
1: When you hear talk about peace between Israelis and Palestinians. That means many different things to many different people, and and here in America, when we talk about a peace process, it tends to be a political conversation about a two-state solution or political leaders getting together.
0: What does peace in that region mean to you? Peace for me. This political definition, what did you say? Political process, peace, how people can be safe, secure, free, and happy. It's the well-being. And peace is not just and good for one. My peace is from your peace. Happiness is not with how much do I have. How much do I own? Happiness is with how much do I share with you. How much do I connect with you? It is outside. So peace is not internal. Peace is with connection with others, and that's what do I say. Peace will never be just and good for one; it must be just and good for all by a choice, not by force but but
1: in this world where you say it's it's so true that you need to make a human connection with others, but in this place where high walls are built or where one one political group wants to destroy wipe the face off the face of the earth the other group it seems as though that connection it's so very difficult to make i'm wondering at what level you
0: start to make that connection amongst people you can work at different levels at the human level at the people level and the leaders level each of them to take responsibility and we must when we speak about responsibility not to generalize, to point by the finger, who is the, the obstacle? As you said, peace is a joint project. We need to build bridges, not to build walls of separation. We need to smash those mental and physical barriers and to understand that our existence is linked together. My safety is from your safety. My security is from your security. My dignity is from your dignity. I can't be free as long as you are not free. We must get rid of the fear and to have the moral courage to work together and to admit the rights of all for the long term, not the short term. Force can work. But for how long can we learn from the history that nothing by force can be achieved? Even within the last few months, with what is happening in this world, in the Middle East, the weakest person is the one who carries the gun. The equation has changed. The civil people started to stand steadfast in front of the militarized people who are armed, equipped, and the other is the weak. The militarized, he can't shoot. He is the weak. The fear is inside him. The fear transferred from the people to the military people. How does
1: what has been happening in the Middle East, though, in the last several months in Tunisia and in Egypt and in Libya uh, and other places, how does that translate to the Palestinian experience and can it translate to, to the conflict between Palestine and
0: Israel? It translates to the Palestinians and all over the world. I can say to you, we thought the nation and the people everywhere, they are dormant. And the leaders are working alone, disconnected from the people. It came the nation to wake up and to say to their leaders, we are not asleep anymore. You are accountable to us. And we are watching you. It's a message to all leaders. It's time for the nation's role and to tell the leaders you are there to serve us, to help us, to work for us. Your eyes must be focused on your nations, on the unemployed, the uninsured, the homeless, the students, the mothers, the children, not you, their eyes to be focused on the next election. We need leaders to tell them you must take the risk, the challenge to work for us. Otherwise, see what happened for other leaders in this world. It will happen to you and to others. We can kick you out. That's the message for everyone in this world. Hmm. And that's the other message, that nothing is impossible. No one would believe that is happening in two months so everything is possible in life once there is a well there is a way
1: Dr. Izzaldine Abulash is an associate professor of medicine at the School of Public Health, the University of Toronto and he's the author of I Shall Not Hate it's a book that recounts his journey and efforts toward rec- reconciliation between Israelis and Palestinians he was in town last week to speak at Central Connecticut State University uh, Doctor, I thank you so much for joining us, thank you for sharing your story Thank you, thank you so much Coming up, we'll talk to husband and wife journalists who moved to Jerusalem in 1999 and had optimistic plans to begin a family and witness a historic Middle East peace deal. They soon found themselves raising two daughters while covering the worst fighting ever between Israelis and Palestinians. We'll talk to them about their book, This Burning Land, that recounts their experiences of the changes taking place over the past decade. It's coming up where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. As we talk about the ongoing conflict between Israelis and Palestinians today, there are few journalists who've been closer to the action than Greg Myrie and Jennifer Griffin. They're a husband-wife team. Myrie, a longtime reporter for The New York Times, Griffin, a correspondent for Fox News. Their relationship started in South Africa and took them to many hot spots around the world, covering the news while maintaining a relationship and also finding babysitters for their kids. Their new book, This Burning Land, presents lessons from the front lines of the transformed Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Griffin now covers the Pentagon for Fox. Myri is senior editor for NPR's Morning Edition. Welcome to Where We Live. Thank Thank you, John. Uh, First, before we get into the specifics of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that you both covered up close and that you write about in this book, I'd like to know what got you there in the first place. What drew you to cover conflict areas as a team? Maybe, uh, Greg, I'll start with you.
2: Yeah, we started about 20 years ago. I was a young AP reporter sent to South Africa at a very dramatic time in the late 80s. And I met Jennifer, who was a uh, college student taking a year off there. And we met at a a massive rally in Soweto, South Africa, with uh, 70,000, 80,000 people crammed into a soccer stadium to see some of Nelson Mandela's prison colleagues who'd been released. And we were immediately gripped by by this, this this kind of story, and this was an incredibly powerful story. And, and we look back on it, and, and, and I think having been at that place at that time, you couldn't help but uh, but get riveted and, and drawn in. And we just took it from there. Uh, we were we, we covered many conflicts in Africa, and then we we went to uh, South Asia and then the Middle East, uh, and uh, we uh, we were hooked.
3: In fact, John, we, uh, when I first moved down to South Africa after graduating from college, I, uh, Greg got assigned up to Mogadishu because there was a famine going on, and he left. I arrived on a Friday. He left on a Monday. And in those days, it was not easy to make – you know, there were no cell phones. You couldn't call. Greg was sent into Somalia with a, a manual typewriter. And I bought a one-way ticket up to Nairobi and, uh, in order to follow him into Mogadishu, and there were only a few journalists in there at the time – um, I was negotiating with the, the the drug dealers, the cot dealers, who were flying the drug called cot into Somalia. They were gonna, I was gonna pay my weight in cot to get uh, dropped off in Mogadishu because there was so much going on and it was there were no commercial flights. So I, I met Greg. I, I surprised him at the UNICEF compound uh, in Mogadishu, and and I called some newspapers from there. Said I was there, and I started freelancing, and that's how I became a journalist.
1: Boy I, I have to tell you, there's a certain part of romance that comes into this. But at the same time, uh, Jennifer, it sounds a little bit crazy. Whenever you hear about people who decide they want to go into conflict areas you you think about these sort of death wish journalists who no. who are general and junkies and meanwhile you're trying to do this as as a team as a pair did you ever find this odd as you sat back and thought about the life that you got into
3: well i think we did the the key was we didn't take a moment to step back we just we went from a amazing human story amazing being a, a witnesses to history in different locations we didn't step back and think if we had we might have uh, reconsidered some of the places uh, we went, but but we were so compelled by the stories. Uh, we moved from South Africa to Pakistan. We witnessed the rise of the Taliban. Greg and I spent our honeymoon in Kabul. We had our two children in Israel. When we we lived in Israel for seven years, and that's what the book is about: uh, those seven years in Jerusalem. And but I would literally on some days to, uh, w- when I was pregnant with the girls, you know, my I would go to work with a flak jacket and a breast pump.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I actually I read that story in there, and I thought to myself, that's one of the, the stranger tales I've ever heard. Maybe you can tell that story <laughs> about the, the flak jacket, the breast pump, and the checkpoint, and actually having to negotiate about a place to refrigerate your baby's meal.
3: Well, yes, it was. Um, I think it was Amelia, our second daughter, and uh, we were in Gaza, and I had always told my mom we weren't going to be in the same place where there was shooting on, at the exact same time, and that was our sort of rule as a couple. And this one particular time, we both got caught out. We were in the Gaza Strip, and we were crossing back through the Erez checkpoint, uh, the, the point that where you cross from is, uh, Gaza back into Israel. And there had been a suicide bombing in Jerusalem, and the Israelis shut down the checkpoint and the sun was starting to fall it was getting dark and we realized we were going to both have to turn around and go back into uh gaza but we were waiting and waiting and waiting and i had i had very carefully been you know bringing this this breast milk for the baby who was back in jerusalem and and i was you know i had gone down i think i'd gone down to interview some one of the leaders of hamas and i had to i I, at one point i got so angry with the israeli soldiers the young soldiers who wouldn't let us pass through i said well it if you're going to keep us here, you're going to have to refrigerate this. And I put the milk on the counter, and you've never seen the look on their faces. But (laughs) they knew I meant business at that point.
1: You you know, when Jennifer talks about making promises never to both be in the same place in a shooting zone at the same time, I'm wondering, Greg, how that came into your thinking. What were some of the other types of negotiations that you had to do while you were literally raising two young children in Jerusalem and trying to cover all the violence around?
2: Yeah, I mean... uh, that, that promise got broken pretty often. Um, there, were, there were always uh, contradictions that, that, that arose. I mean, we might both race out in the morning to cover the same event or different events, and at 1 o'clock we'd sort of be on the phone. Uh, can you pick up the kids from preschool? No, I can't. Can you pick up the kids? And we'd be sort of going back and forth uh, to see who would pick up the kids. Um, there were occasions, one in particular, when we were – it was a Saturday night, and we just wanted to get some rest. And a suicide bombing just down the street from our house in Jerusalem rattled our windows, shook our house, woke our baby. Uh, Jennifer wants to race out the door to to meet up with a camera crew uh, to to cover it. I'm trying to call the police to get details, um, and we're sort of uh, passing this crying baby back and forth. Uh, fortunately, our babysitter who lived a mile away was so well schooled in this terrible drill. She came she came racing over to our house. We did we couldn't even reach her on the phone, but she just knew to come running. Um, so we made it work, but uh, there was a lot of juggling going on.
1: The book is This Burning Land, Lessons from the Front Lines of the Transformed Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. The authors are Greg Myrie and Jennifer Griffin. They're a husband-wife team who've been covering the Middle East and really all over the world in conflict zones, and it's a fascinating look inside this world. You have two very, very different jobs working as a team. Greg, you're able to go into places with just a, a pen and a pad. Jennifer has to bring along a camera crew and, and an awful lot more. How was doing these two very different jobs um, different? What did you learn from each other when, when you're both trying to cover the same wars, but uh, doing two very different things?
2: Well, it was complimentary, actually, in a lot of ways. I mean, I might be down in, in the Gaza Strip talking to some Hamas leaders, for example. Jennifer might be in Tel Aviv talking to Israeli military uh, leaders. And we could compare notes at the end of the day and say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Here's, here's their thinking. Here's the way the Israeli military is approaching that. And I could tell her what the, what the Hamas guys were thinking. So in, in that sense, it was often, often complimentary. Uh, many times we would just wind up at the same place. We wouldn't even necessarily be in contact, both just running around doing our jobs and we'd show up at the same spot or we'd get home at the end of the day and say, you know, I spoke to, to, to these Israelis today or these Palestinians and general say, Oh yeah, I spoke to them too. So
3: Well uh, in fact in fact, John, there was an, and there's an incredible story that we outline in one of the chapters of the book where I was down in the Gaza Strip and the Israelis had, had carried out an airstrike and they had um, they had killed a number of um, Palestinians and the Israeli Greg was in Tel Aviv getting briefed at the uh, the uh, IDf the, the, basically the Ministry of Defense in Tel Aviv about what had happened, and they were still denying that any civilians had been killed, but I was on the scene, and with my camera crew able to see that in fact we had gone to the hospital we'd seen witnessed uh, and talked to those who had been injured and, and and saw that that some had died in the airstrike and what we did is we took the videotape of uh, the the nose cone video that the Ministry of Defense handed out. Um, down in Tel Aviv, and we took it back to our camera, uh, to our editing studios in Jerusalem, and our bureau chief, Ellie Fassman at the time, the Fox bureau chief, uh, slowed down the footage. He had served in the military. He was a tank commander. He slowed it down, and he showed how the, how the uh, pilot had missed the people uh, from the nose cone. It, but when you slowed it down, you could see that there was a stream of people running into the street at the time that the second bomb from the Israeli aircraft landed. So Greg ran over there. He was working for the New York Times, and Ellie showed him the video, and so uh, we worked in tandem a lot of times to kind of get to the bottom of stories, because we were basically, we doubled our vision on any given story, because we were both out in the field.
1: Probably more than in any other conflict that you can cover in the world, the truth is so very, very hard to come by because every time there is is an attack into Gaza by the Israelis, uh, there's always some sort of statement that says that perhaps terrorists were there. Whenever uh, Gazans uh, lob some sort of uh, missile into into Israel. There's denials on the other side. How did you get at the truth of what was actually happening on a day-to-day basis? Because it must have been quite the moving target.
2: It, it really was on, on, on a couple levels. Um, one great benefit of reporting from there is it was an open place. People loved to talk, and it was very, very small. So you could actually get to the scene. You weren't having to, to call 500 miles away by phone and and try to find a witness, you could actually go to the scene, talk to eyewitnesses yourself, Um, or in many cases, you would just be out and about, and stuff would be happening uh, nearby. So uh, you can
3: cross the front lines. That's what's unique about this conflict, is you could cross the front lines on any given day and report both sides of the story. And that's what this book does for the first time, I think, uh, and why it's so significant in documenting the last 10 years, is that we were able to crisscross back and forth across the front lines, and we bring you characters from each side of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict so that you understand what each side is feeling and, uh, and going through during these pe- past 10 years of fighting.
1: And it's something, as you write in the book, You're lucky in that on neither side Are either of these people going to likely say No comment You're always getting comment from someone Because as, as Greg just said People love to talk
3: yeah, yeah. And journalists always- are also the vessels through which <laughs> both sides present their case, and they are—they're arguing their case every day in Israel and Palestine, and and journalists are the vessels through which they do that. And we found that to be very fascinating. It's one of the reasons we stayed for seven years, but also very difficult in terms of getting at the troops. And we have a chapter in the book called "Versions of the Truth," and it's how even language is is dissected in a way and and crafted in a way to try and get you to to each side point
1: of view. Jennifer Griffin now covers the Pentagon for Fox. Greg Myrie is senior editor for NPR's Morning Edition. For seven years, they lived in Jerusalem and covered the Israeli-Palestinian conflict there. They write about it in the book, This Burning Land. When we come back, we'll talk about whether there's a solution to this conflict they covered for so long. It's coming up on Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, prejudice is one of the more troubling and baffling aspects of the human condition. It's been the subject of scientific study for many years. Are we hardwired to judge others, or does our society teach us the us-versus-them mentality? A recent Yale study argues that prejudice is more than the product of our culture or history. In fact, we may learn something from our primate cousins. You can join the conversation on air and online at wnpr.org. Keyword where. Today, where we live, we're talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This weekend, saw news about renewed pressure on Israel from the international community to make a deal with the Palestinians to create a separate Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. Greg Myrie and Jennifer Griffin thought that might be close to happening as far back as 1999 when they first moved to Jerusalem. They were raising their two young children while reporting on both sides of the conflict. Myrie for The New York Times, Griffin for Fox News. Their book, This Burning Land, presents lessons from the front lines of the transformed Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You, you suggest in, in the introduction to your book that when you moved to Jerusalem there to start a family and to live and cover this conflict, did you believe that perhaps you'd be there to see a historic peace agreement? Um, Did you truly believe that? And at what point did you realize that that just was not going to happen?
2: Well, I mean, yes, I think we we truly believed it was within reach. It was never certainly a certainty. But it just seemed like they, they, the Israelis and the Palestinians had put a half-century of really bitter conflict and fighting behind them. Uh, You would see Israeli police and Palestinian police patrolling together in the same vehicle. Every day, 150,000 Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza came into Israel as commuters. They worked uh, in all sorts of Israeli businesses during the day, went home at night. Israelis went to the West Bank to go shopping, get their car repaired, that sort of thing. There was a lot of interaction going on. We drove around ourselves. You often didn't know when you were leaving Israel and when you were entering the West Bank. Uh, We'd be asking, where is this conflict that that everybody's been talking about? And the bitterness and the the frustration and the anger was certainly there. But it seemed in some sense that a peace agreement would just begin to catch up with the reality on the ground, which was that the the peoples were interacting and and there had been no serious fighting for, for three or four years when we got there. So it it certainly seemed possible and I'll, I'll let Jennifer bring up the point when uh when we just we realized it was all all going to go bad.
3: Well Greg before you do that mention the fir- one of the first days when you got there uh the scene at the Al-Aqsa Mosque the um the dome of the rock uh, um what you witnessed at the at the mosque that day.
2: One of my first days in Jerusalem, it just as is, is more of, mostly as a tourist, I started walking around, and I went to perhaps the most important uh, uh, piece of real estate there in the entire region, which is the uh, Temple Mount, which is the most uh, important place in Judaism, and it's also to the Arabs, it's known as the Noble Sanctuary, that, that famous gold dome on the religious shrine there, which is one of the holiest sites in Islam. And when I walked inside the Noble Sanctuary... There were, of course, uh, some Muslims uh, sitting on the carpeted floor reading from the Quran. But the first thing I noticed were about 20 or so Israeli soldiers in uniform, but they'd left their guns and their boots outside. And they were sort of padding around the place, getting a guided tour. And this is part of the sort of cultural sensitivity. Clearly, the Israelis were preparing themselves for... Or dealing with uh, the, the situation there and looking toward the future. And uh, the worshipers, the Muslim worshipers, were just ignoring this. This was part of the daily routine. It was not a big deal. It didn't feel tense. So there was this sense of, okay, we're, we're trying to, to coexist and work this out. And it, it certainly seemed uh, like it was moving in that direction. But within a year, uh, things were very different.
3: And in fact, I was at the at the base of the Temple Mount, uh, standing near the Western Wall, uh, just beside the um, Golden Dome of the Rock, when Ariel Sharon, who was in the opposition leader, took those famous steps on the Temple Mount that really marked uh, uh, the beginning of seven years of of the Palestinian uprising. It was on September 28, 2000, and I was pregnant with our our first child, and I was feeling a little. I had morning sickness, and I remember when the rocks started flying over the walls down onto the Western Wall where Jews were praying and, and Ariel Sharon's um, uh, visit that day. And we outline in the first chapter of the book um, what it was that motivated him to go there and conversations that he had with certain individuals and who it was who convinced him to go there. And, and this hasn't been reported before, but the person who um, who did convince him to go has since died, and he had asked us to not tell the story until he had died.
1: As we talk about some of the ways in which all of this can change, I find it fascinating at the end of your book, you have conclusions in in a series of, of 10 reasons why The both of you think that that perhaps things have not gotten better. One of them has to do with the leadership on both sides, and maybe you can talk through that. You you mentioned Sharon, but there are so many other uh, leaders, powerful leaders over the course of time, who have not been able to, for one reason or another, get to the end of this conflict. Uh, Talk, maybe, Greg, if you would, about how leadership, both on the Israeli and the Palestinian side, has been the cause or partly to blame for this uh, conflict continuing.
2: Right. I mean, you, you, you had a lot of these sort of founding fathers on, on both sides. On, on the Israeli side, somebody like Ariel Sharon certainly stands out. And on the Palestinian side, the dominant figure was Yasser Arafat for decades. And these were men sort of born of the conflict. I mean, they literally came of age um, in, every, in every sense of the word back in when the, this conflict began in full in, in 1948. They were literally involved in the, the fighting in the 1948 war. And that that I think colored their vision all the way for for decades afterwards, and and made it very very difficult for them to to make compromises and, and the kinds of things that were necessary for peace. And literally a half century later, in 2000, there you have Sharon and Arafat again at the at the center of this drama, and and you had to on the one hand these were leaders of enormous stature; they could bring their societies along with them uh at certain key moments as they had for for many years um on the other hand they were uh, resistant to a lot of the compromises that would need to be made uh to to work out an agreement and and so now what you see is you have i think leaders of much less standing they're 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 seen as as politicians and they don't have that stature and that standing so on the one hand you need a leader i think of great standing to make these very very difficult tough choices Um, On the other hand, those leaders aren't uh, around anymore, and again, they may not have been been willing to make those choices. So it's it's hard to see who exactly could lead either side to an agreement right now.
3: There are no Nelson Mandelas right now in the Middle East, and that uh, was very disappointing to us. Hmm.
1: But not just that there are no Nelson Mandela's, in a place like Gaza, it is filled with increasingly many, many young people who certainly don't remember 1948 or 1967. They just, they know Gaza as one of the most tightly congested, most difficult, uh, dangerous places in the world. And I'm wondering, Jennifer, how that plays into what what we're seeing now, the the rise of Hamas and, and their power not only as a military but as a political organization, it just seems as though as things get worse in Gaza, it can't possibly make for a quick and easy resolution over the course of the next several years.
3: Absolutely, and it's really a cautionary tale for how problems cannot be left to fester in the Middle East, and you're seeing uh, in these revolts that have, the wave of revolts across uh, countries, you've had decades where, uh, uh, like in Gaza, where there was not really a political outlet, Uh, there was not, uh, and and populations became radicalized. What's very interesting right now is for the first time in the Arab street, in capitals across the uh, Middle East, uh, people are not blaming their problems on the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That used to be the old mantra in the Middle East. And for at least this short period of time, um, those those revolutions are turning against the tyrants who ruled them and and didn't provide them with services and didn't provide them. And, and so Greg has pointed out many times in recent days, as we've talked about this, that all it takes is a spark in the Middle East. There's been such a combustible situation that, you know, whether it was a, a fruit seller in Tunis who set himself on fire, uh, you can't leave situations boiling for as long as leaders in that region have done, whether it's in Gaza or elsewhere, because um, because the anger is such that it is really combustible.
0: But, but of
1: course, the anger in some of these other places, in, in Libya and uh, and in Egypt was against the the tyrant, the ruler. Uh, it, it keeps coming back to the tyrant in the Palestinians eyes, uh, Greg Myrie, being being Israel. And I'm wondering, first of all, if that will ever change. And and as we were reading in The New York Times over the weekend that the international community seemingly is ready to start to push Israel more toward doing something. Uh, to settle this agreement on their own, to reach out to the Palestinians, because uh, at a certain point the U.N. and the rest of the international community is going to ask them to do this very, very thing.
2: Yeah, I think we're going to see something very significant coming up in the next few months. It will probably play out over a very long period of time. But for decades now, the paradigm has been Israelis and Palestinians should sit down and negotiate. Uh, The U.S. could often be the mediator. But that – and they need to work out an agreement. That's been the way this has been approached. But with the negotiations going nowhere, and and literally for a decade now we haven't seen any any great progress, the Palestinians are starting to take a different approach, feeling, well – if the Israelis are not going to offer us something that we feel is, is uh, uh, satisfactory and the Israelis feeling that we can't really negotiate because you've got two, a two-headed Palestinian leadership with Hamas and Gaza and the Fatah in the West Bank, we're going to just go for international support. And, and the Palestinians have, obviously, a lot of international support that there should be a state. And so they're talking about going to the United Nations to the General Assembly where the U.S. could not veto a resolution and and try to get recognized as a state of Palestine, which would include all of the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. And therefore, Israel would be put in this very awkward position, if something like that happened, that there would be a Palestinian state, except there would be Israeli civilians and Israeli troops in this Palestinian state. So instead of trying to, to negotiate a 100, a 1,000 a small points with the Israelis, um, sort of going over their head and just going and making an appeal to the United Nations. And again, the Americans in particular vetoed a lot of, of resolutions against Israel over the years, but if something was done in the General Assembly... Um, that would not uh, be uh, a place where the U.S. could veto.
3: But also, John, go, just to go back to your point about tyrants in the Middle East, don't forget that the rise of Hamas in Gaza was as much a result of Yasser Arafat's tyrannical rule um, and the Palestinian authorities' lack of, um, of institution building um, and, and uh, providing services to people. Hamas filled that gap, and that's what a lot of these Islamic movements have done in places. And so there's, you really need to understand Hamas and the rise of Hamas in order to understand what's happening in a lot of the other uh, Arab countries
1: right now. Before I let you both go, in our first segment on this program, we talked to a Palestinian man, Dr. Iseldin Aboulesh, who grew up amidst the violence of Gaza, and he saw his family ripped apart by it. Now, he's urging reconciliation. Do you think that there are enough voices like his on both sides of this conflict to actually make some sort of change? Because you do write about him in this book
2: yeah absolutely i mean he is the, he himself is the leading example um, you know I'm sure as your listeners have heard the the terrible terrible tragedy that uh, that happened to him and and I actually met him back uh, right around the beginning or shortly after the beginning of the Palestinian uprising in two thousand and one and he was just this this remarkable figure even then um, there are Good, good people on both sides, like Dr. Abu Elsheikh, and even majorities, I believe, on on both sides. But it, it doesn't. It can take a small number of people to to undermine. Uh, the good work. We saw this repeatedly during the 1990s when it seemed like the negotiations might be making some progress and there would be an attack or a bombing that would, would really sour the atmosphere and, and be a big setback. So, yes, there are enough good people there, no doubt about it, but it's, it's preventing extremists from acting and, and, uh, and destroying that atmosphere.
3: But, John, it's people like Isidine Abu Leish. They are the reason that we wrote this book, because it's characters like them that we present in the book who we had such empathy for and we got to know in such a personal way over seven years that we wanted people to understand the conflict through their eyes, and, and they became the vehicle through which we told this story.
1: Jennifer Griffin and Greg Myrie are the co-authors of This Burning Land, Lessons from the Front Lines of the Transformed Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. Uh, Jennifer, of course, is a correspondent for Fox News. Greg Myrie works for NPR's Morning Edition was is a longtime reporter for The New York Times. Thank you both so much, not only for the conversation, but for this great book. I think it teaches us a lot about what's been happening there over the course of the last uh, several years. Uh, good luck with it and uh, continued success to both of you.
3: Thank you, John. Thank
1: you, John. Where We Live is produced by Josie Holtzman. The senior producer is Katie Zielarski. I'm John Dankoski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, The Evolutionary Roots of Prejudice. I hope you can join us.